I'm Marcus Wilson. This show is called Into This. Where I go deep with some of the main players in the contemporary art scene in the city of Montreal about how and why they do what they do. This is episode number seven, curator Loretta Lamargese. Loretta is the co-director of gallery Arsenal Contemporary in New York City. She has written for art publications like Canadian Art and Editorial Magazine. She holds a bachelor's in art history from McGill University and a master's in the arts from the University of Chicago. We met almost a year ago now, in late January in 2017, when she was still working as a curator at Division Gallery in Montreal. Our conversation then was an assortment of topics ranging from social media to celebrity culture and some advice for the young people in the arts, but mostly is centered in denouncing some of the most prevalent social issues in North America and how they intersect with the art world. Loretta and I discuss issues like power dynamics and sex abuse. But I've had collectors act totally inappropriately. I've had interns be like, oh, well, is it okay if I, because he did this? And I was like, do you want him to do that? No, no. And then I was like, well, then it's not okay. Okay, but can I tell him? Because I know he's an important client. I'm like, it's always okay to tell me, or not even tell me, but to be angry. Also issues involving race, gender, and class inequality. You probably harbor deep inside of you, as everyone else does living under white supremacy uh, and patriarchy, some sentiments about other people that you might not express openly. You might express it behind closed doors with your loved ones, or you might never express at all. And I think those decisions obviously go into who gets into certain places, how they're treated once they get into those places. Unfortunately, we've been getting used to hearing about these topics in an on and off type of basis. At least that's what it seems like on social media and mass media. Basically, these issues become trending topics for a week or two, and as quickly as they come, they are forgotten. One of the ways to keep them present is by talking about them, being active in one way or the other. So, here's my conversation with curator Loretta Lamargese. You're listening to Into This. Thanks for listening. I wanted to start asking you, when was the first time that you realized that Montreal was a very special city politically? That's an interesting question. I think I've always kind of considered Montreal to be special because of how I grew up. Like it felt, I felt really happy being here as a youth. Like there was never the possibility of being somewhere else. I think also because the community that I was around were people who had immigrated to Montreal. So it was like a lot of Italian and Caribbean immigrants. And so like the sense of being here was like, it was always like the best option for everybody. Mm. The only other place that I went to growing up was Italy. So it was like, there was these two places and they happened to both exist for me and there was no other, there was nothing else. But I mean, even then, like, I think just the diversity of my friends and like their different upbringings and like the different foods that we ate and our families and how passionate we were like it always felt like an exciting good city and in fact I think that only dissipated as I got older <laughs> and then I found different kinds of politics mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was like clear to me that there was something special in the fact that like all of us were kind of in this place together right and that we, we weren't from here necessarily both of your parents are from Italy yeah yeah so both of my parents were immigrants so that kind of history of, or like the sentiment of being not from here was something that kind of transpired every part of my life. Like yeah. my mom learned English at the same rate that I was learning to oh, speak wow. even. Really? Um, yeah, she she came, like I she had me when she was 
22 or 23 and my brother at 21 and she was learning to speak English at the same time because it was like a year after she had gone here. Um, and my dad had been here since he was six or seven. So he had a total, he was totally fluent in English. Yeah. Um, and there was definitely a sense that there was like, we talked about politics at home. Um, I remember talking about Bill Clinton in my house and my dad being like, this is a good president <laughs> or something. And like just believing whatever my father was telling me. Yeah. So politics definitely were palpable in my home, but in the sense where everyone was kind of in concert, you know what I mean? Like there was yeah. no dissent. Yeah. My father was like the talking head and we all agreed. Sure. And then I think as I got older, my brother and I, like we became more educated than our parents, which yeah. is an interesting, I think also immigrant story. We had our politics and everyone else had theirs and we all agreed what was good and right within the infrastructure of the family. But. Sure. Afterwards, when you were more educated than them, did you have the same ideas that they had before? No, definitely not. Okay. I mean, I definitely found different things. There is things that I think I'm I'm very grateful that they had offered me. Like my father was very anti-police, which is like something as a kid I thought was like kind of embarrassing. I was like, oh, who's this kind of cowboy character? The police are good. Like, you know, you're going to school and you're learning these things. But we always had in my house, like my dad was like, the police are not to be trusted and all this stuff. And then as I got older, I kind of picked up on that fabric and being like, oh, like, you know, the powers that be might not be on our side. So that was something that I kept really early on. But then like when I was younger, I probably like when I hit puberty, I was like, oh, I need to find some kind of feminism right. because that did not exist in my house at all. And I was like, it's not going to be, I'm not going to find it like hiding behind the couch or something like I'm going to need to outsource this. So it's like a patchwork of things, I think. Yeah. And do you remember the first time that you encountered those ideas? Feminism? Yeah. Well, like, I thought it was probably an embarrassing term when I was in high school because, oh, really? like, this is a huge blanket statement. But I think that people who probably had similar upbringings educationally as I did, like having gone to a school that you needed, like, you need to pass an exam to get into or whatever, like, they probably come out with a lot more politics than I did because it wasn't the norm to talk about, like, LGBTQ ideals or even politics or or feminism or race politics like that wasn't normal when I was in high school it's still kind of embarrassing like I don't know how to explain that but I think I think I had frameworks to think about femininity that later on I would have definitely thought of as being feminist mm -hmm. but at the time I think I was just talking personally about my own position and then by the time I got to Dawson or CJEP in Montreal I was like oh there's a term for this and it's not in fact embarrassing it's kind of it's actually quite necessary for me yeah. um, but I remember like in high school definitely because what happened to is like the transition from my elementary school to my high school I was just like a huge switch in demographic none of my friends in elementary school had parents who were not blue collar right. and so getting to high school where I kind of got sidetracked into like this other stream and everyone suddenly was their parents were lawyers and doctors or accountants and everyone was white suddenly and I was like oh shit and I remember I brought politics to that that uh -huh. my friends didn't have I was like uh -huh. guys there seems to be something happening with race and they were like what are you talking about oh, sure and I think I had something just based on an upbringing and that continued to kind of become something that I pursued in terms of how, what I was reading and who I was talking to or talking about as I got older. Who do you think that is the responsibility of? Say that you are in a privileged position, for example, like what you're saying, like mm -hmm. all your friends that were white and privileged. Yeah, like, including myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but who has that responsibility of like telling you, okay, so not everything is like this. I get mm -hmm. for, for a growing teenager or something, like it's not as easy to realize that 
not everybody has, you know, yeah. two cars and like a garage. I mean, I think it is the responsibility of the educational system to basically dispel that people like there was a lot of mediocratic kind of thinking in my high school is like if you were smart, you would succeed. And there was a lot of that kind of bolstered and then reproduced and disseminated. It was kind of like, you guys are here because you're the best. You're the elite. And I remember being like in grade seven, being like, a lot of my friends from elementary school aren't here. So does that mean that they're not as good as I am? And I remember thinking like there's something inherently flawed here because it can't be that this group of people happens to just be a lot smarter. It's like there must be there must be something that's forcing this mm-hmm. group to to succeed and not allowing others because I still believe that the friends I was friends with were still really smart. I mean, I went to school with them. We grew up together and we were always at the same level. So to suddenly be like, oh, no, those kids aren't as good as me in a mm-hmm. sense or, or aren't aren't as successful as me or don't have the capacity to succeed like I do didn't feel right. Yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, that's like that was a huge problem with the school itself. Right. Um, I also think, yeah, to, to lay out that it's a systematic problem and it's not this kind of individual pursuit of greatness, um, because there was definitely social issue programs in my high school, but they were all kind of like this white benevolence. It was like, let's go to uh, Guatemala and like build a house, which is great. Like, yeah, go to Guatemala and build a house, but talk about how your position as white people allows you to go to Guatemala and build that house, mm-hmm. you know, or mm-hmm. like there was a lot of issues talking about like poverty in Africa. And it was like this kind of blanket statement for the whole continent of Africa. There was no kind of being like, hey, why do you guys get to live in communities like Hampstead or Westmount? And other other people have to live in neighborhoods like NDG or Cote Neige and why they don't get to go to school with you. And you're yeah. all part of the public school system in yeah. air quotes, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I just, there seemed to be something, there was something awry. Um, but yeah, I think it is the, I think it's absolutely the responsibility of the educational system, especially since like, as we learned from the Trump election, it's not happening in the home because no. a lot of these families are perpetuating stereotypes if not full-blown racism so mm-hmm. anyways i mean there, it's, it's impossible to escape any of those news right now and it's incredible how divisive mm-hmm. it is right now you know all those things we're in canada but you still feel that well i think that people are aware that it's the empowering of a certain kind of racism and a certain kind of xenophobia and a certain kind of misogyny and that doesn't stop at a border because that's not how information travels so yeah, yeah. And also, like, this isn't, it's not even an American issue. It didn't begin as an American issue. Like, we've seen the whole world kind of harden and become xenophobic way before they elected Trump. So the fact that, you know, suddenly people were like, how would America do this? And it was like the same way that Britain did it and France did it and Belgium did it Germany. and all of these other places. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge proponent from, like, moving away from ideas of leadership in terms of politics and paying attention to ideas of opposition and resistance. We don't have to resist because it's Trump. We have to resist because it's been bad for a long time. Mm-hmm. And also to say that it's, people are resisting now because of Trump is to erase basically, I think, the history of specifically people of color and women who have been fighting a fight for a long time, you know, because the leaders have always not been on their sides. Yeah. I heard an argument that it was really interesting that is, these people were asking, like, do, do you remember how you felt that morning after the election? Like the no- November 9th, you remember that that feeling of like heaviness and like everything was like off that morning when you woke up and you were like, what the fuck's happening? Yeah, like, well, how this happened? Mm-hmm. But they were saying like, that's exactly how it feels to be black every day. I mean, that's like really intense. Yeah, it, it has to do with the fact that like 
an entire group, whether big or small, was made to be unhuman for a really long time. And to think that that's erased in a century, less than a century, is crazy. Like, that's not how you undo a paradigm. Mm. And also, like, the U.S. government and the Canadian government, the West in general, has done a really good job of making it seem like is unreal or like it never existed. So it just erases dissent over and over. White governments and white supremacist governments go out of their way to erase those mm-hmm. storytelling habits mm-hmm. or, or just the ability to tell stories. I mean, the residential school system in Canada is that history of being like, you won't be able to recount these stories because we will wipe your history away from you uh, by basically forcibly taking your children away, taking your language away. Um, and other like, f- forms of violent assimilation uh, and subjugation like those are there's it's not you know it's not happen chance that like oh like you have this group of people and they just seem to not be able to to succeed and no it's like you keep doing shit so that they can't of course of course I mean, um, or the opposite everything in the system is aligned for privileged people to succeed I wanted to ask you before are you still friends with the people that you grew up with no 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 you completely lost their from, their from elementary school yeah no, it's um, like we we have, but I'm also not friends with the people I went to high school with either. <laughs> no, uh, but I just just to ask you, like, what are they doing? No, they we were like forced into very different paths. Yeah, literally, none of my friends of color got into this high school, oh, and wow. but you know, uh, three of my white friends did. Everyone who applied, and there was a crazy disproportion of white people in that high school. Anyways, um, that's the thing that I I maybe I'm super naive. In this sense, but like I just still can't believe that it's like a conscious decision saying like I'm not gonna allow you to come to my group. You know, I feel that is more yeah. targeted towards like helping your same. Is that a crazy idea? I mean, I think most people believe that to be true, but I personally you don't. Think, yeah. And I think that there's, if you look at just statistically, like it's not right. Like it just it can't be true. It's the same. You know, it, that would be that would be to say that everyone who can do something happens to be white like look at a take a field for example Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. art (laughs) and look at how many white men are at the top of the art world and also white women now which it's changed but how little of everybody else exists now i know for a fact that can't be because of pure competence Mm -hmm. um and i think that like that I mean, that's the illusion of, of systematic racism is even if you think you're not racist, which the racist never thinks themselves to be, because that would be to displace themselves into the category of badness, you probably harbor deep inside of you, as everyone else does living under white supremacy uh, and patriarchy, some sentiments about other people that you might not express openly. You might express it behind closed doors with your loved ones, or you might never express at all. And I think those decisions obviously go into who gets into certain places, how they're treated once they get into those places. Absolutely. I agree um, with that. I mean, I, to me also, the notion of class was so front and center as well. It wasn't just race. It was also mixed with class. And there was just this idea of what kind of person they wanted in the school and what that person looked like. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were people of color in my high school, but they were so few and far between so few and far between. And it was a public school in Montreal. Like, go to any other public school in Montreal, and that's just not the case. So the one with the entrance exam suddenly has more white... Like, it just doesn't make sense any way you slice it. 
So, yeah, I don't know. I started to figure out something had to be wrong then. And I was getting the same grades as my other friends, too. But their parents happened to be on welfare. Right. You know, like there's there's those kinds of questions, too. And nobody else that I went to high school with had parents with on welfare. So I'm going to go back to the art world. Okay. But in the same sense. So, yeah. for example, people like you who have the chance to choose people to be in shows. So this is like a factor that you always take in consideration when you're planning a show. For sure. I mean, I think that, I don't know, I try not to like tokenize anything, but I think that it is important to look at who usually gets represented, even in the gallery that I work for, mm -hmm. and how other voices might actually not only like help because diversity is this great thing that we need, like just to allow people to access. And it's not a gift. It's like those voices and the art that they're making is just as valid. If a lot of great artists that I meet happen to be, you know, not white and not male. Um, and so I let them into the space. And, you know, if you meet another white male artist and you look at who they're hanging out with and who they're showing tends to look a lot like them. Mm -hmm. And so You know, I think it's important to just force yourself outside of certain spaces, I guess. Like the Whitney this year did programming that was entirely female. Mm -hmm. It's just like the only way to ensure that you're going to diversify is by, you know, kind of creating these mandates where you say, I'm going to have to do it. How don't you tokenize? How do you go outside of that? How do you get... Away from well, because that. you don't put somebody in an exhibition because you need a black mm -hmm. voice or a native voice Just or whatever. One person, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like you're going to you're you're going to see artists that aren't just white male artists, yeah. and then from that, I'm hoping at least you're not taking that voice and allowing it to do the thing you want it to do, but allowing it to speak in a space freely and f like to operate on its own accord. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think. Uh, It is it is a complicated issue, but I think it's not that complicated at the same time. Like to try to complicate something as much as simple as like, hey, you need to put other people in your space that don't look like this thing always is not that complicated. Right. Do you find people easily that are not? Yeah, it's not hard at all because my interests look and are the way they are. Yeah. Um, and there's people making work that fit what I think is interesting or or follow threads that I'm also following. And because those threads aren't, you know, the history of patriarchy yeah. um, and like these kind of and ideas of virility, like they happen to bring me into corners that aren't populated by the same people over and over. Yeah. Um, if you don't want to tokenize, maybe like change your discourse, uh -huh. like look at focuses that aren't only available to white people. Yeah. Uh, or like histories or stories or whatever, it's not like, then you're not going to do that. You're not going to just put in a voice because they happen to be Latino or whatever. You're going to put in a voice because they fit the story that you're trying to tell in your exhibition or the theme, you know? Um, I mean, obviously, art is going to speak to a group of people outside of privilege. It always has. Like, that's not the history of art. The history of artists that get listened to right now and become successful might be that. Mm -hmm. Because you need to operate successfully and not have to take another job, for example, uh, and to be able to pay your rent when you don't have your parents or or even a patron or whatever, if you're not able to integrate or infiltrate a circle that is privileged, it's hard. So those artists maybe never come to the fore. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for them to like, you know, they don't, they don't emerge in the same kind of ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's definitely, 
there's definitely a lot of privileged kids going to do their MFAs, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because like that costs money. Yeah, I'm just curious about if you actually encounter a lot of different backgrounds. Honestly, it's a pretty white privileged yeah. space to work in. And I have friends who wanted to go into art and they quickly changed their minds because mm-hmm. they were like, there's no place for me mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's pretty shitty. Oh, it's yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. It's I mean, like not to be, it's horrible. Like it, it is. It's just it's like there's something wrong. Obviously, yeah. I think Canada does have this thing which is better because education is so cheap, especially in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to go and you want to continue your education in Quebec, going to Concordia is still really inexpensive. But like you were saying, if you're thinking to yourself, "Hey, I need to succeed because I saw it was really hard for my parents to just pay their rent or live," like that you might not choose art. Mm-hmm. Um, But at the same time, like, I think there's efforts being made to create communities yeah. for and by people of color, yeah. for and by women, uh, that kind of bolster those narratives. Yeah. And what I've heard, like, about those spaces from, like, specifically other white people is like, well, it's not fair because I'm not allowed in. And I'm like, well, you're allowed to go anywhere all the time, so this one's not for you. But I think that, like, having those kind of communities is important and, like, basically saying, like, privileging those voices, not a white person privileging the voices, just, like, those kind of community formings. Yeah, I think that's kind of one way that it gets bolstered up. I don't know. I I'm not going to, like, defend the art world because no. I think the art world and I'm not attacking it in any way so nothing no dissent here but like I mean I think any way you slice it that's why I was kind yeah. of pointing to other things outside of the art world yeah. that I'm like oh well this might be a way right. because I think the art, art world right now is just so inherently flawed when it comes to yeah. not only inclusivity but just also just showing good shit like yeah. consistently uh, there's just a lot of problems and Uh, I don't know how to fix that. I think that. it's always been like that, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if anything, I don't want to kind of bolster a, neg- a narrative of progress, but it may be getting better. I don't know if that's even true. I can't even go there. But it's like, yeah, it's always been like that. Uh, yeah, like you tell me, in the guts of the art world, when you are like discussing, let's let's make this show and let, let's have this. The other Can you thing- just put like these ideas on the table and like people are going to receive them fine? Or I mean, I don't want to say anything like too personal in terms of because, you know, I don't want to put in the spot either. But what I what I do want to say is this is me basically summarizing something that Juliana Huxtable said. There's a difference between representation and then getting the support like the all of the others, not just being seen, but getting the support that comes with sustaining that visibility. And yeah, you might have somebody in a show, but are you going to back their studio? Exactly. Like. I I show a lot of different kinds of artists, but which artists get backed uh, in a in a long in a longer way. Um, and then you have a lot of artists that you know might not be cis heterosexual white males, who yeah they have a lot of cultural capital, but how does that translate into real capital? So we're all walking around with pockets full of cultural capital, but we can't pay our fucking rent. Like I don't know. That seems pretty. There's like there's this real thing where like yeah it's kind of like oh it's getting better because see and I'm like yeah but uh, you put one of her videos in uh, a museum show how much does she get paid for that mm-hmm. uh, what galleries are representing her okay so her art isn't commodifiable what 
you're giving her a lot of talks. Like, can she pay her rent off of a whole bunch of talks? Like, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that don't translate into capital. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, some of it might be tokenizing, but also like some of these artists are literally teaching us and we're not paying them. You know, like their objects, their discourse, everything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's getting better, but the same people keep making money. So is it actually getting better? Like, I want to see people in the art world switch where they're placing their money you know so who who gets the money galleries <laughs> no i mean the galleries i'm not never mind who's getting paid and just in terms of who's getting patronage yeah. like a good friend of mine Anna, oh, i see what you mean how bukowski just tweeted like how do i get that special white male artist deal where I get a patron, but I don't need to have sex with anybody. That's a real thing. Like <laughs> these are like a lot of these guys are getting like their shit paid for. They're making work, uh, but it's not happening for everybody. Sure. And also like a lot of people are giving shows to these artists, but they're not paying them to show their work. And like knowing that their show is going to bring them visibility or like this kind of critical discourse, but mm-hmm. it, that the work that they're making isn't going to sell mm-hmm. and they're not paying them for just entering into their space and giving them that critical backing that that gallery needs right now. Yeah. I wonder how much of that thought or like what percentage of that thought is divided into, okay, I, I want to make ends meet into the equation of like, I want to be an artist or it's just like, I know that it's going to be tough. I'm going to just like go for it in a romantic way, say like, I want to just do whatever I feel like doing. I mean, I think that the the narrative of like the romantic artists of the capital R is obviously one that gets perpetuated. But I think a lot of people who go into art don't have another place to go. Like there's no other way for them to exist in the world. Like, I don't know, like if if, for example, your family is not a home and socially it's not a home and politically you don't have a home it's like you start making these things and populating your own home you start writing things you start talking you start creating communities that don't feel like late capitalism they don't feel like all of these other things that don't like it's this isn't your country this isn't your place like i mean that not literally like you don't you don't have a visa or a citizenship i mean like it's not for you. These things aren't made for you. So you need to build other things. I think also like there's also people who just need to build stuff yeah. and they hope that they're going to get paid for it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I no, think the narrative I, yeah. as to why someone becomes an artist is different. Like I know personally uh, when I was like 15 and 16, I was like, oh, I can draw real good (laughs) and I can, I don't know, like I seem to, I have all these weird stories in my head and I remember just like always kind of feeling like, like my friends in high school would always be like, she's the weird one. And I'd be like, I'm not weird. I just don't, I don't know. This is like, this is me. And I just always felt like kind of displaced. So you have an example of that? Remember? Yeah. I mean, I was just like, it's just like, it's going to sound like teenage angst basically which it probably was because there was a lot of death cab for cutie involved (laughs) but like I just remember always being like needing to make stuff or write stuff like all the time um and just feeling like I had I was too big for my body like I was I had to displace a lot of my energy into things around me and and I happened to also like feel like I had skills that are normally called artistic skills Uh like just being able to draw representational things And then my parents obviously noticed it. And so they were very like, go ahead and draw all the time, even though they didn't get it, you know. 
Um, like I remember being in my room, this is like, a, like I remember being in my room and draw, like writing, drawing a line down the middle of a paper and just like f- creating this basically like uh, mirrored image, you know, uh, on both sides of the line. And then my mom came in and she's like, in her like thick Italian accent, like, that's a pussy. And I was like 16 and I was just like so mortified, but at the same time being like, I just like had these images and yeah, like uh, like cr- drawing vulvas is like a form of femininity now seems like so silly, but like I was 16 and I just like sure. wanted, just like was doing this thing and it, like it didn't translate. There was no way, like there was no way to be like, hey, I made this, can I explain it to you, mom? It's just like, I needed to make stuff. Yeah. Um, and my parents, as far as they saw it, were like, oh, you're, you can draw, so you're gonna go to art school and following the history of every other woman in my family, it didn't fucking matter if I went to art school or I went into like something technical, some man was gonna marry me and I was gonna have my shit paid for by the time I was 24. Mm-hmm. Like this has always been their sustaining idea and that's why I was allowed to do things. Because oh. my brother was like, hey, I'm gonna go into history and my parents were like, no, you're gonna become a lawyer. Like absolutely, because men make money and women don't. But I was like, I I totally knew that they were wrong. Like mm-hmm. I I knew no man was gonna start paying for my shit because mm-hmm. no man could ever love me that had a lot of money because I would always be angry about it. I mean, I hope they start, but it doesn't seem like they're <laughs> going to. But I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna take that freedom that they think is like afforded to me for whatever variables, and I'm just gonna run with it. And then. I went into art history because I realized I wasn't a very good artist, um, maybe. I like I really liked writing, and I was like, there's not enough of that in this. I want to go into yeah. to art history. Uh, how do you realize that? I mean, like, what do you say that you realize that you are not a good artist? Um, I probably realized that I wasn't a very good artist. Uh, well, I mean, like, I was surrounded by people that weren't very good artists. Because okay. it's like Dawson College. Yeah. And you can tell really quickly... This is the thing about privilege too. Like you can tell really quickly who should be doing. Uh-huh. Like oh, you're looking around the table and you're like those people, they have something and they should they should pursue this. Yeah. The rest of them like they should do whatever makes them happy, but they might not be successful sure. in, in a certain way. Yeah. In art because they don't communicate well in a visual language maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But whatever, go go on with your bad self and do your thing. I just knew yeah. that I would not ever be personally satisfied in art because I didn't communicate my thoughts by making physical things in the world. It was like, if you gave me a piece of paper, I would explain my artwork beautifully and go into weird factions and I would, I felt good about what I had to say, but I was never like really like enamored with any physical thing that I created. Um, but we also like really early on in, in CJEP even, I was really interested in like collaborative practices So I think at that point, I didn't even know what like a curator was, not to be like, I found curation. But I remember like being friends with this. Curation found me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being friend with this girl, Zoe Brunelli, and she was really good. Like I remember looking at her stuff and being like, oh shit, this girl has something. Like she was thinking in weird ways and she like, I was just like, whoa, like she's making good stuff. So I just attached myself to her and I was like, let's make collaborative work. So we would kind of like. I'd come up with concepts with her and like write text and we'd like kind of work together. But I was really kind of like curating her practice in a sense. Yeah. And there was like a third girl, Jessica Kirsch, who now runs a gallery space in Montreal. Yeah, CK too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we kind of all worked together in this group dynamic. Um, I Yeah, I just knew I'm like this. I could be really not to be like I'm, I want to pursue greatness, but it was mostly like I wasn't going to be happy yeah. doing things. And I also felt like I needed a history like. 
there was nothing to hold myself onto when I was making art. I was just like, like there's so much like vulva stuff, you know, <laughs> like this weird essentialist feminist stuff. And I was like, I don't know. There was like the same images over and over. And I was like, I wanted a textbook. I wanted like philosophy and I wanted yeah. discourse and I wanted history and I wanted all of it now. And I was yeah. like, I need a degree to yeah. find those things. So you went for art history yeah. to McGill. Yeah. And how was that? It's okay. I found some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> and I found really good friends. And yeah. I found people who felt very similar to me and happen to still be my really good friends now. Um, like, I wouldn't say I love the program um, completely. I think it has some things that could change. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things that I needed were there. Okay. And it was cheap. Yeah. I lived at my parents' house, and I was probably richer then when I was 17, 18, or no, not 17, I guess 19 to 21, going to McGill and living at my parents' house than I am now as like working someone at with a, a full-time job. Yeah, working yeah. at a pharmacy, yeah. making so much money, <laughs> not paying any rent, reading yeah. a whole bunch of Foucault. So you finished McGill and you went to the States? No, I moved to no. Toronto first. Oh, okay. Yeah. To do what? I worked at an art gallery called Jessica Bradley okay. when I was in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And uh, I bartended at Hoops Sports Bar and Grill. Right. <laughs> I just said that in the most radio voice I could. Um, and this other place called Duffy's. Both okay. of them were fine establishments. Um, so I bartended and I, and I worked at an art gallery. It was my first experience working in an art gallery. And it couldn't have been better. It was like an all-female staff. I liked the artists we worked with. Um, The Jessica Bradley is a really great curator, and she had been in two institutions at that point, like the National Gallery and the AGO. So she brought just like a very uncompromising view of what she liked and what what was worth kind of pushing. And there was a lot of good discussions about art, and they were also just really empowering. Like they kept being like, "You can do this," and I was like, "I can do this." Like, you, you're good at this. You're organized and you're smart. And I'm like, I'm organized, I'm smart. So it's just like a really, it was a really dynamic, good environment. But the gallery closed last year. Yeah, I heard. You know why? Why did they close? Just like, she had been doing it for so long. I'm sure okay. she has a myriad of reasons as to why. Right, right. But they had a good run. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. In that sense, mentorship. How's that been for you as a curator? Being under somebody's wing. I mean, it wasn't in such a direct way. I think my mentorships are spread. Mm -hmm. They're not just art people. I think I've been like mentored by a lot of different people who just kind of like, honestly, my group of friends mentor me in a lot of ways when yeah. I'm just like feeling sad. Yeah. I don't want to do it anymore. Or people who are just like recommend me books. For sure. A whole bunch of men mentorship. I mean, I think working in that gallery, some of my coworkers felt like mentors in a sense where I, I was just like, oh, that's a, like a career path I wouldn't mind replicating. But then also like, Life has gone in the way of that. Okay. Like, I don't think there's, like, the sustained idea of mentorship. I try to, like, empower myself sure. as well. As a, like, very prime example, when I worked for Jessica Bradley, her and the assistant director, Leah Turner, both of them, I felt maybe not so much as they were mentors, but they were people I looked up to and that I wanted to emulate in certain ways. So they... they Pushed you to continue in the uh, yeah. The they same were very path. they were very empowering. Right. Like, I came with like a BA and no gallery experience. Yeah. And how did you get the job? I interned for free for oh, okay, a, a okay, while, okay, okay, okay. and then I got I got hired at the right. gallery. Yeah. Um. Hence the 
the bar jobs. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I applied everywhere for internships and then I got that one and I was really excited about it because it was my first choice. Yeah. That's um, great. It was just a good vibe. Like we got along well. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved there with Jessica and then she had taken an internship mm-hmm. at another gallery mm-hmm. and it became clear to me how lucky I was to be have gotten that job because okay. it was clear very early on that there was a whole lot of bullshit in the art world. Yeah. Just like some really shitty male gallerists that got away with a lot um, and I was just in a really safe environment. Yeah. These are experiences of your friends? Not yeah. even of my friends like in general. Just in general. Yeah. There's just a lot of like for example when I was at McGill, uh, one of the really popular internships was the Venice, uh, the Guggenheim in Venice. And I remember we had this meeting about internships and they were like, all right, we need to talk about the fact that if somebody touches you during your internship, like, don't be scared or going to get fired. Like, the the university will take care of that. And it happened that, like, all of these girls were getting sexually assaulted in Venice at, like, the pristine institution of the Guggenheim. Like, there was so much weird sexual assault. And that just, like... That was the earliest instance of noticing that that was something that was happening. Okay. But yeah, I mean, there was a Canadian art article that Jessica Kirsch was also involved in talking about this because there's like a whole lot of men with a whole lot of money and power. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of alcohol. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of freedom. Art. Yeah. Gets messy. Yeah. Yeah. And then men think they can get away with things. There's a lot of power dynamics. There's a lot of young women in entry or unpaid positions and a lot of men in positions that are paying or not, or should be paying them. And some stuff goes down and it shouldn't. And it's hard to even say that it happened to begin with because you don't want to lose your job, everything. I don't know. There's a whole, there's a whole lot of. Of course. I mean, like, you know, you're fighting for a place there. And then if you say something like that, it's probably not going to be super beneficial for you. Like, that's what you think. That's what you think. But that's not the reality. Yeah. That's why there needs to be more places that hire, uh, I don't even want it. There's so much wrong. Because I was going to say that hires women, but not only like to sit at the front desk and like yeah. be a so-called gallerina, gallerina, like that really wants, you know, and that, I hate that term because like it's this idea that you're sitting on your, t- like the tops of your toes all days, emailing. It's like, no, that girl's working. Yeah. She's probably busting her ass. Yeah. Uh, anyways, there's a whole bunch of problems with sure. how labor and femininity intersect in the art world. Yeah, yeah. And, and in your personal case, in your job now, do you see that moving towards somewhere that you feel more comfortable? I mean, I don't think any environment is perfect. Yeah. I've personally made a point of telling the women I work with and the ones, like, we, we you know, I've had a couple of interns that worked at the gallery and explaining to them that they are always going to be listened to if they ever feel like, something was not okay, uh, that I will always, like, believe them and that their voices, and not only in this job, but in all jobs, that they should speak forcefully, that they shouldn't be afraid. Because um, you'd be surprised. Like, I've had, not, and obviously nobody I work with, but I've had collectors act totally inappropriately. And I've had interns be like, oh, well, is it okay if I, because he did this, and I was like, do you want him to do that? No, no. And then I was like, well, then it's not Okay. Okay, but can I tell him? Because I know he's an important client. I'm like, it's always okay to tell me, or not even tell me, but to be angry even. I don't know. My framework is like, capital is not more important than anything. So like, 
some of these girls are unpaid interns. There's, yeah. there, I mean, there might be different kinds of capitals. There's, there's the dream of eventual monetary capital, but it's not even attained, and they're still scared. I'm like, ah, mm. no, like, not, not that I'm blaming them at all. I'm saying like, systematically, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, but like for myself personally, I was just like, I'll bartend again before. Of course. You know, if it, and I wouldn't want to work for an institution that would ever think that what I'm doing is embarrassing or yeah. or like looks bad on them when I'm just literally call, in the most blatant way calling out sexual assault. Yeah. So I think we should talk about something light. Oh, There's so much political sure. talk, and I'm man, like, I'm oh, I don't. I'm, no, it's me. I always go no, back no, no, to no, it. No, 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 no. I've been thinking a lot about these things lately. <laughs> this is where these ideas have to come forward because there's, you know, there's not much more sort of like audience for this, you know? I mean, it, there's always been political art. Political art is the kind of normal or, mm -hmm. or like the prevalent form of art is... Ah, but you think it is, a no? switch. I mean, after Trump, yeah, I think there is a push towards not like this kind of false, you know, like I'm political because it, it gives me some kind of liberal cachet. There's a lot of things that need to be teased out. And art is one place that that can happen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I hope, I hope it becomes, I literally hope it becomes the paradigm, and it's the form of privilege art because it's going to force a lot of these dudes who have been making some garbage for a long fucking time, which is literally just capitalist objects, yeah. to get with it. Yeah, um, I want, I wanted to ask you something that um, I was thinking about because. If you go on Instagram, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna change to social media. Great. Um, I'm I'm I kill at social media. I have 800 followers on. All Instagram. right. What's my handle? Oh, it's Loretta Lamar That's right. Anyone so wants to follow, follow me? Follow you guys. Okay, I mean like my 40 listeners <laughs> or 30. Well, oh, that's great. I I'm, I'm down. I'm at um, 30 friends. Or enemies. Or enemies. So social media. Yes. Do you use it to work? Or just like personally? Honestly, <laughs> I'm so extra on social media. Like I, it's always been the case that I'm like, I'm going to get a Twitter and I'm going to, I'm going to use it in this way. Like, I don't even know what the word professional is, but or Instagram, I'm like, I'm going to use it in a professional way. And I just have no, there's, it always just ends up going in this yeah. other direction. It goes into my brain. I use it like a, this weird McLuhan like extension of myself. I'm like, oh, but I can post a cute picture of myself and get a hundred and something likes on it and feel a little bit better about myself today. I think I'm going to choose that. Honestly, like I've been living in like this post-apocalyptic state where I was like, I remember telling people, I'm like, we, I'm not bearing children. Like this is not a world meant for me anymore. Like, yeah. like it's always been like this, but it's not just the Trump thing. It actually started more so in the last like three years or two mm -hmm. years where I was just kind of like something is awry in the world like it doesn't feel quite right and there might be no future and that's kind of also when my social media just went like you know what I'm just going to use this to fulfill some weird pleasures yeah. that I like I just stopped caring about the idea of being like professional or like using it for work and I was just like I'm going to put all of the good and the bad and my like it's it's such a weird extension to me. Right. Shout out to the next person who might want to date me. Like you should definitely go through my Instagram because it's a very good image. It's like my sun sign, like or no moon sign, where it's like it's who I project myself to be, like right. what I think who I think I am. There's other curators that work behind their like gallery handle uh -huh. or even their own personal handle that will just post like artists that they like yeah. and things shows that they saw and maybe a couple of like very timid, tepid 
selfies of themselves like with their mom or a, a landscape. Mm-hmm. I want to be that girl <laughs> or guy or whatever, but I just... I, I literally was talking to a friend. He's like, your Instagram's getting weird. I'm like, there's a lot of text-based stuff going on it. A lot of weird selfies. Even some of the self- selfies have been like a little racy lately. Like, I don't know where those came from. I normally, like, my roommate will say this. She, she's like, you don't, like, I'll be like, I, I can't post that because there's too much skin or something. Yeah. And lately I've just been like, screw it. It makes me feel good. Yeah. And not in like the weird, like, sad girl, like, like, look how cute I am. I'm making art in my, like, naked. Like, not that kind of shit. Just like literally like once in a blue moon. Right. I'm going to post a cute right. selfie. <laughs> so yeah, the answer to your question is I do not use my Instagram for right. work. So just but like I use it for work. For work it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about celebrity culture. Because what you say about like, I want to get a little bit of that satisfaction. And I think that's a little bit of that. Somebody looking at your stuff and like somebody liking it mm-hmm. and all that stuff. is It gives you a little entrance to that which was not accessible before. Just celebrities could access to fans and and all these things, right? So like this is a little tiny drop of yeah. you putting yourself out there and yeah. then like feeling this immediate recognition for like, you know, things, whatever it is, either something that you wrote or like how good you look or like this I mean, landscape yeah. that you admire. And there's this weird thing like with the closure or like the shutting down of Vine, it's clear that you don't this art like I just keep calling it an extension or I kept saying that it was this extension of myself but it doesn't belong to me it's actually like like it's totally privately owned by someone that isn't me and it could be used for somebody else's content like I'm basically creating cultural material for other people's to to, to use I totally know that I'm my content is serving like if I sit and not even sit and think about it like at the back of my head I'm like oh this content I'm generating is fueling a whole bunch of shit that I don't necessarily even stand for or want to do but at the same time like same thing with my Facebook feed or Twitter or whatever so it's like you know when people are like oh I can't believe Twitter's free or whatever I'm like no Twitter should be paying you to post these like incredible jokes or like or news like my my greatest news source right now is like three Twitter accounts that I have I'm just like oh it's just constantly generating news for me yeah you have Um, three Twitter accounts pardon yeah, or like three. the three that I, I follow, like three Twitter accounts oh, that I follow, oh, you follow. Okay, are, okay. are basically my news sources, right, 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 you know, right, yeah. like I don't even need to go on the New York no, Times anymore because sure. I have like, it's constant. you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but what I was going to say, no, I have, I only have, I just got Twitter as a New Year's resolution actually. Okay. And it's not professional, but I really but, like it. I mean, sure. I mean, um, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. I think that. I, I know I'm generating content and that also like this archive that I'm creating that I keep saying is like an extension might just disappear and be taken away from me. Like Instagram is this thing that's really popular right now. So maybe one day, and I mean, not maybe, absolutely one day Instagram will disappear. Yeah. And then this archive I've kept of I don't, literally a thousand photos at this time, if not more, is going to go with it. Maybe it's like going to be this zip file that I never look at that I downloaded and extracted. But at the moment, what I do know is if I post a picture of myself, I'll get a certain amount of likes. And for a very small period of time, it will make me feel a little bit better in a day where I read, you know, that Elizabeth Warren backed Ben Carson. And I'm going to yeah. say to myself, fuck that. But I look fire on my Instagram. <laughs> no, for sure. But I think I think what you said is is, is super relevant about the uh, younger generations. Uh, celebrity culture mm-hmm. is big in younger people. It's I like, mean, it's huge. but do you love celeb? I love celebrities. You do. 
Kind of. I mean, yeah. like, I'm totally interested in the like this carnival. Yeah, well, but what is it? What is it exactly that you that draws? Well, I you first towards? of all, growing up in like Montreal in 2007, when if you listen to anything that was so called popular, it had to be done with irony or something, which is also such a white thing because that meant like hip hop was suddenly ironic or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like no, hip hop's not ironic. And they're like, oh well. I don't, actually, my friend Jason Voltaire tweeted this. Like someone in his class said, basically, like if you if you're listening to if you're not listening to I forget what band he had said, but it was like N.W.A. or something. Then like your your choices are bullshit or whatever. Like you don't love hip hop. It's like no, you can love something that feels good under late cap that feels like late capitalism. It's like it's upbeat and it's f like whatever. But instead of taking all of like the bad shit like yeah. labor and whatever. You just get to feel good and listen to it, and it's like this like super fast beat, and it just I I mean I love it. So I'm like always been. This isn't I don't want to use the word populist, yeah. but like, and I just believe that I follow pleasure in a lot of different avenues. Yeah. I've always been interested in like the kind of these people who live a life the same way that I am, yeah. but that other people get to attach themselves to and feel a part of mm -hmm. and also like all of the ways that they can make themselves bigger and expand and make themselves smaller and retract and then attach themselves to other people and they create like that it's all visible for us and it's like this kind of parade like yeah also how can you not like it like when people are like oh i don't like um the kardashians or whatever I'm like the whole thing. They literally like big data style. They found all of these ways that they could please us. They're like the sound of it, the the their speech tone, the the editing, and they they made it for you to feel good and to turn your brain off and to listen. And I am down. I am the daughter of like visual culture theory. Uh -huh. I was talking to my friend Adam about this the other day. I want to be able to watch a show where I turn off my brain. Yeah. Where I'm like not being like, oh, th that seems not like problematic, but this seems like, like just makes me feel, uh -huh. but I can't, I'm like dissecting everything I watch. And so I really like watching popular culture too, because I know millions of people are watching this and I'm watching it in this way where I'm, it's both really satisfying to me, but at the same time, I'll speak to my friends a week later and be like, Conscious of it. Yeah, we'll yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. how Kylie Jenner is basically modern day minstrelsy and like what that means for other people to be like enamored with her, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm watching it critically as well, not to be like, I'm a smart watcher, mm -hmm. but it's just like, I get both pleasures at once of being like, yeah. paying attention to this contemporary moment and the culture that's coming out of it. And also just being like, I get to watch the Kardashians, which is vividly exciting as a television show. because it's, it's, that's its whole purpose is to be entertaining. Yeah, I was trying to um, aim this celebrity culture towards art too. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that intersects with art, you know, like the social media thing and especially Instagram because it's more visual, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if, if that's a, a way like that galleries are using it to communicate with artists too. Yeah, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. it serves well as a PR platform. Mm -hmm. If you have enough followers, you can be like, hey, look at our show and here are all our images. Yeah. And then there's these other accounts like Art Viewer that, you know, post their pics of art shows and blah, blah, blah. Like Instagram is a big platform for seeing and looking yeah. at art. Yeah. And it has been for a while. Um, so it's just the internet in general. And yeah, there's artists who are using Instagram to yeah. make art. Yeah. I'm thinking like Amalia Ullman, mm -hmm. for example. Um, Chloe, Chloe Wise uses her Instagram a lot. Um, 
I think that we do want to attach ourselves to images. Honestly, I'm living for the memes these days. <laughs> no, and memes I think Montreal yeah. is this crazy hub for incredible memes. Yeah. Got yeah. Shakira. Yeah. She kills the memes. You should have her on this, actually. Yeah, for sure. She's really good, and she's based I, in Montreal. There's this really good essay by Aria Dean on memes that I recommend. But I think memes are, right now, communicating in a way that feels really important. Um, and I wouldn't say that they're not art. Exactly. I mean, memes to me are like, if if I show you a meme and you get it, I'll know that you'll get it, even though it's not literal, right? Like, yeah. that's that's the beauty of it. I think you can show somebody something that is like, is your personality. It interpolates you in a way that I think other images mm-hmm. haven't been able to. Yeah. If that's even that's a huge. That's a huge statement, but I might stand by it because it literally asks you to associate it within this like quick internet verbiage like, oh, that's me. You know, you'll like comment like, look, it's me to a friend or that's you yeah. or even like or community building like that. It can point to a group of people. It can speak in this language that's just Absolutely. like almost immediate. Um, I also think that what got Shakira and Scariest Bug Ever and all of these feminist meme accounts did with their like spicy spicy content was basically say oh a lot of these memes are actually they they were one of the earliest people to do this because okay you have basically like this history of net art and you have people like Brad Trummel and the jogging creating what is basically a earlier version of a meme and but like replicating alt-right images of like conspiracy and then disseminating that on an art platform but then it, it is so legible to that community of of far right people that it starts to actually gain traction in that community and then comes back as a bigger art object because of its ability to yeah. to move outside of itself but really you're just generating more racist content so you have all of this and then you also have these memes that the beginning of memes which replicate a lot of racist shit like the fact that pepe the frog yeah. became this hate yeah. symbol because of the the quickness of it they're also malleable in a way that they can they can move in and out of communities and form and serve different purposes. But you have the ability, I think, of for memes to do that. And then there was a lot of memes that were really misogynist and sexist and racist that were just disseminating like they weren't. Because yeah. they were like, you're just kind of scrolling through it and you're like, aha, yes, this speaks to me in a way that's immediate and true. And it's like, yeah, that's because you live under racist patriarchy. So it obviously speaks as immediate and true. And then you have these chicks like... Scariest Bug Ever and Got Shakira and I'm missing a whole bunch of them. And they start basically like flattening it out and being like, no, we're going to just start generating a whole bunch of feminist memes that are intersectional. And like the guys attack the shit out of them. These all right guys, basically. I mean, I don't even know if they would. That's what they were. But they were, you know, just saying like chicks are idiots. These aren't even real memes. Like as if there was a pure meme form. And they just kept pounding them out and now I feel like maybe it's because of my feed and this idea that you know I don't even see other memes anymore I just see this which yeah. is like this kind of intersectional meme intersectional that became, as in like it's 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 women issues and also like uh, race. Uh, race issues and class. class yeah they I mean they killed it they like they fought for it too like they were getting bulldozed oh yeah these guys were I remember like following this at the inception of it or like early on in their meme account histories and seeing these people commenting being like die bitch like that kind of like really angry violent stuff and they were just instead of like backing down they just kept taking their stuff and repurposing it into memes and then they kept building off of it yeah 
And the content that they created was quick, accessible, digestible, funny, but it also was intersectional and feminist. And then it pervaded outside of intersectional feminist places. Yeah. Do you know Pepe is trying to be uh, rescued? From uh, from the white supremacists. Who's rescuing him? Like the, the uh, guy who made it. Like, oh, I know. It not, I, one of my yeah. good friends, my friend Nafisa, she dressed up as Pepe for, yeah. for Halloween like last year yeah. at a time that it didn't have that connection at all. Exactly, exactly. And it was, you know, she spends her life, she's like an advocate too, you know, yeah. and I sent it to her as soon as it became like a race. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the only person, like a bunch of people were like, yo, check this out. And yeah, it sucks. But that's the thing about images is... No, and that, that's the thing about social media too. I mean, it's so easy to say anything in, you know, behind like a, an image or a meme when it's like completely anonymous, right? What's terrifying, I mean, I don't know, everything's not. terrifying. Everything is terrifying, but what is also <laughs> terrifying is that they don't have to hide anymore behind images. Like the last thing that that Nazi said before he got punched in the face. So he's pointing to the pin that he was wearing and said, oh, this, this is Pepe. It used to, and then that's when the guy socked him in the face. Should we talk about art? Let's do that. <laughs> Tell me about your MFA. Mm. How was that experience? I was like, I'm not going to get political. And then you asked me about my MFA. And I was like, shit, that's a political answer shit. for me. No, that's fine. No, let's, no, no. Let's go in there. No, yeah, it's fine. Um, I was really excited to go to Chicago because when I was doing my undergraduate We were reading a lot of theorists that were coming out of Chicago. So in my mind, I was like, this is the apex of learning. Um, and I was really excited because I was I thought, you know, I'm going to learn under or get the tutelage of W.J.T. Mitchell, uh, Lauren Berlant, all these incredible star academics. And I was really stoked. Um, I think the University of Chicago has those individuals. But I think the institution itself, which I was paying to go to, like I paid money to mm -hmm. go to, to do my grad school, which mm -hmm. was like funding this institution, which in my mind was criminal in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. Is that how it normally goes? Though? Like you pay normally for grad school in arts? Well, like a master's degree sometimes, other times you'll have subvention, but yeah. because it's a, it's not a PhD program, it's right. like a separate program. Yeah. So it wasn't like I, I had partial, like it was covered partially, but there was, I was paying something to go mm -hmm. to school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I just basically found out early on that my politics and the politics of the university, the University of Chicago itself, did not meld. Yeah. I did not do my research. <laughs> no, well, basically, like, the University of Chicago is the hub for neoliberalism. It's, like, the place that it comes out of. And not only did it come out of there, but it's cradled and, you know keeps taking different forms under the university and that's how they make all of their money like there's no sports department and there's no I don't know what other ways schools make money but the way that the University of Chicago makes money is that the economics department yeah. wins Nobel Prizes yes. and they keep doing it year when I was there they won two it's crazy yeah. because neoliberalism just keeps winning um, so I realized that I didn't have a lot in common with the mm -hmm. school and The reason I felt that most clearly was like I started working for the Smart Museum and the program that I was running was the educational program wherein these kids who lived in the south side of Chicago, which is like no more than 20 blocks from the university, would come to the museum and during a 10-week process they would learn at the museum and then I would go to their classroom and I would see how teachers could apply things that they learned about art in their curriculum. 
easy enough. And then I would do all the statistical stuff to figure out if it was working or it wasn't working. Then we would submit that to the Chicago School Board. Right. Great program, like on paper. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. It sounds good. Because it's measurable too. It is yeah, measurable. It should be. There is a bit of this kind of like white savior thing. Like the university will go in and fix these kids. With, but the thing that I, I noticed really quickly with the program was that the students in Chicago aren't told that they have access to certain resources that is for everybody, but just happens not to be for the black community. Like they were like, wait, the University of Chicago isn't just a hospital. I'm like, no, it's a school, which is crazy because they live next to this leading institution. They don't know that. Whereas like from grade five, which is the school year that I was teaching, they know about colleges for sure. Like there's college flags all over the school. They like talk about going to college. That's the end goal is that these kids apply to college. So very strangely, the University of Chicago isn't even under consideration for them. The other thing that they don't know is that museums, for example, are free, that they can go to this museum on, on campus that's really close to them and look at art. And that's one of the things that the program would teach them. So basically, they felt like these resources were not only for people at in Hyde Park or at the University of Chicago, but also for their community, which obviously they didn't believed to be true because the University of Chicago has done everything in their power to make that community feel unwelcome. Mm. And that's a structural problem that comes into like city planning, the way that they built this university outside of the metro subway system so that people who live in the community don't need to ever enter Hyde Park. Uh, that resources in that community aren't, you know, they're not for or available to them. It's very segregated. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there were some things that were positive, but the thing that I couldn't map up was that the University of Chicago as an institution was involved in these art programs, all of them art, including the one that I was working with. The other one was Theaster Gates, like getting behind his art practice and like opening these kind of hubs and different ventures. One of them was his own home and transforming it into like an archive and et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time that these specifically black mothers had been protesting for the University of Chicago to open up its hospital to uh, trauma victims forever and that they weren't doing it. So all these people were dying, having to go all the way to Northwestern. So if there's an emergency there, like somebody got shot, shot or something. Which is unfortunately is something that's quite common and that they would have to drive all the way to Northwestern and often die along the way. Yeah. And that the university wasn't doing anything about it. And I couldn't sync up in my brain, okay, if you care enough about this community to start these art programs and to get the Astro Gates and blah, 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 but you don't care enough as an institution mm -hmm. to open a trauma center that they absolutely need, then you don't care about them. Mm -hmm. That was like, I, I, can, I can figure logistically how this works. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that fucked me up. I was like, this is not the place for me. Right. When do you realize of that? Like very early Throughout. on? Throughout. It just like... It kept creating cultural content that spoke a certain language. Mm -hmm. But then when push came to shove as an institution that I was giving money to, it wasn't holding up those ideals in a way where people's livelihoods were at risk. And that those two things I couldn't put together in a way that made any sense. So, um, yeah, the education was good, but I think the place is really, really corrupt. And I, it's not the only school that has this problem, but it happens to be the one that I went to. And then like a year or two after... I left, they ended up opening the trauma center. Okay. Um, 
Was there a lot of backlash from society or from like even just from the university? From <laughs> In the university, there was like no dissent. Oh. All of the dissent that was happening came from this community in the South Side. Like I said, namely mm -hmm. mothers, family members of people who either people who had literally gone shot or were killed, mm -hmm. but also of other people like just knowing what's going on in your community. And there was like there was there was protests, there was marches. Yeah. The university did not pay attention to them. And then finally, when they did, they're like, we are happy to open up a trauma center. But they never acknowledged, like, thank you for all of the hard work, years of activism and resistance from this community. They never acknowledged that. So they mm -hmm. just kind of like, so you just decided out of nowhere to open a trauma center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. that's that's what I mean by this erasure of history, mm -hmm. like that we talked about before. Like there's a whole bunch of opposition and a whole bunch of resistance but it gets erased by dominant discourse right mm -hmm. and the school definitely did that but I learned a whole lot <laughs> well like going from McGill where you're taking classes on contemporary art and you're basically reading like what I was reading those MIT books that are that say things like the sublime which aren't necessarily bad books but going from that to suddenly taking courses where you would have to read, you're reading issues of like Texture Kunst and, and Art Forum and just like really keeping up with what would eventually be your peers, hopefully, mm -hmm. if you're a writer. Mm -hmm. That was a really important transition. I think the level of education was much higher. And like, at least in contemporary art, like I think it has a good program. I don't think it has the strongest contemporary art program necessarily. Yeah. Um, and also having artist talks by all of these artists that I, I really liked, curating shows the first show that I curated in Chicago was like for a class that we took um, at the Riva Center and the curator that I worked with, like she brought these artists in and we were, it was like a whole class around putting, we put a show together for this class and we ended up working with artists that I really like, like Carl Holmquist and a whole bunch of others, Taupa Auerbach. Um, and that's kind of when I first really was like, oh, I, I, I can put together a show, yeah. you know, like yeah. I would love to put together a show. So that was actually when the idea of curation pretty, like before that I was kind of like, exhibitions are to be mounted for galleries. For sure. And then when I went to Chicago, I was like, oh, exhibitions are these like organic things that I can work on and tell stories with or like solve problems through and or, or just show artists that I really like, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. There's just a little, a lot of different forms that exhibitions can take and that was immediately made aware to me through that institution for sure. or through my education there. I'm sure that there's like a bunch of different shows that you can put together, right? In terms of like, what do you want to show? Who do you want to show? When, where, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. What is something that you really like? Kind of like favorite kind of like shows? I mean, I don't have a favorite kind of show. No. Like right now, I, I guess I'm interested in forms of writing and poetry, which is becoming really kind of cool and popular, which is like not why I like it, but there are zeitgeist or whatever. I've always been interested and continue to be interested in ideas of... Uh, queer or feminist space making um so like i did a show on basically the domestic realm mm -hmm. and it's kind of like how it's formed and i would like to continue to explore that in different avenues like one of the shows i'd like to do uh talks about assisted living homes in canada basically okay. which is like such a weird premise for a show but I it's kind of like my dream show that someone's gonna give me division um a lot of them are personal for me too in a way and become personal for the artists in their own way and then i like how those two things that seem separate actually are interconnected through like the weight of basically lived-inness right. um but yeah I, i spent a lot of time in assisted living homes when my grandmother was still alive and just basically seeing how something that something that had to be both clinical 
public in the sense that it's government funded, mm-hmm. but also had to kind of look personal. Like there was the aesthetic of there was a certain aesthetic that comes out of those three things intersecting. Mm-hmm. And I remember just being there and like sketching and writing notes about like how those things could intersect, how you could have like uh, like you know um, stainless steel pens, but also like f- images of flowers. Um, and also how these people who lived in these spaces weren't questioning their environment, but it was totally necessary to them. Like there was yeah. a lot of kind of literal supports, like both in government funding, but also like bars on the wall. So I, I'm really interested in like space making and the stories that get made in spaces. And I think that's like a one way to work with artists or that I found right now, like it's probably going to change in six months that working with artists is interesting because they bring their own histories and then often like it'll kind of fit into that or it won't and that disjointedness will make me feel like I feel like it could work. Right. How does it work in that sense? So for example, you put the idea out there and then some people, artists, I mean, take it and then like do something with it. Generally, I'll do a bit of research. Mm -hmm. Not a bit. I'll do a lot of research. um, And I'll find artists that I either know personally or that I see online or I'll do studio visits and then, you know, I'll propose this idea to them and I'll say like, I think this series works for it. Otherwise, like if you feel compelled enough to make mm-hmm. a new work for the show, then yeah. I'll do that. That's at the yeah. group show. And then obviously with solo exhibitions, I meet an artist and I yeah. see what they're doing. Right. I see if it all of their things fit Fits. with the space yeah. that I'm curating for. Right. They want to work with them too. So it's a lot of different variables I have to work together. Yeah. And sometimes it takes a long time. Like there's a couple of artists that I've been wanting to work with And just like the timing of the space hasn't fit yet. And hopefully I'd love to give them a show. And so I'm just trying to figure out when that can happen. There's a lot of good Canadian artists and female artists. That's the other thing is working at Division. Like there is a focus on Canadian artists because, well, A, we are in Canada, but Mm -hmm. also because there's this kind of subvention. I keep saying subvention, but it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what the English word is. Like there's a kind of like tax rebate or whatever if you buy other Canadian artists and like but that not to say that I don't show artists who aren't Canadian because that would be a huge hindrance to not no but I mean like you know it's it's probably also accessible for you when you're here but we're also really close to New York right yeah Yeah, like the customs officer was like why are you here so often I'm like because it's really close Uh it's a two-hour flight you know like an hour and a half and you're in like arguably the center for contemporary art right. of the world. The center for contemporary art, the CCA. Um, no, like the, like, the, yeah, you know what I mean. Montreal, in, in the map of contemporary art, where do you put it? In the contemporary art? It's very art marginal. Or, yeah. And I don't say that with any kind of, um, I'm, not, I'm not making it small or unimportant in any way. Yeah. I think that it could totally work to the city's benefit because yeah. it doesn't operate within the circle. Um it can kind of do its own thing. And there aren't the politics that New York has. Like, for example, if you have one artist in New York, then another gallery can't necessarily show it because there's a kind of monopoly of space mm-hmm. and artists. Not that there isn't enough artists to go around because that's not true. Yeah. But in Montreal, you can show anybody. Yeah, They will have to work, want to work with you. But right. I also, the space that I work with is connected to a space in Toronto. Yeah. So I'm not only in Montreal. Yeah. You're listening to Into This. My guest today is curator Lorera Lamargese. She is originally from Montreal, but since early 2017, she's been living and working in New York City. Here's the rest of my conversation with Lorera. 
I always ask this question to my guests because it's interesting for me how people get into stuff in general. Yeah. I love that sort of like initiation to something because I love new things. So is there any like artists in your family? Like how? No? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> the way I just said, uh, no. No, I mean... <laughs> I have a huge family. Like my mom comes from eight brothers and sisters yeah. and I have 21 first cousins, maybe 24 now, actually. Nobody is an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm the only buddy, I'm the only person who's in the arts. The ones who do have a university education, which is only the ones who immigrated to Canada. Right. Weird. Uh, is uh, It's all in kind of sciences, uh-huh. political science. Um, I don't... The first time... You know what? Actually, there was one moment I think that like kind of interpolated me and was like, oh, wait, what? Which is my best friend, Ashley, growing up, we used to like do these doodles together, you know, like just like kind of like that very 90s style, of, like really big eyes, like fashion drawings or whatever. Yeah. Um, and one day her mom saw me drawing and she's like, oh, you're really good. And I was like, oh, thanks. And I kind of knew at that point, too, even when I was younger, like I was like, I draw a flower really well or whatever. Right. And she's like, oh, Ashley's older sister, Tanisha, who was, I think, 16 at the time and I thought was the coolest person on earth. Like, I could not think this girl was cooler because she was like, you know, like cute and she's obviously popular in her high school and she dressed really fashionably and she was in a dance troupe and blah, blah, blah. But she's like, oh, yeah, Tanisha's an artist. And I was like, really? And she's and this is like one of our, you know, like Ashley and I were just becoming friends or whatever. We went, ended up being really good friends for a long time. And they go into the house and she shows me all these paintings like they had really pushed their teenage daughter. Like they bought her canvases and paints and she was doing these kind of drawings of like like landscapes and stuff of Trinidad and because they had gone on vacation there and she was doing a lot of like just like these really nice kind of gestural paintings but she's 16 and she kind of already had her own style and they were really pushing her and I was like wow she did these all by herself and she's like yeah yeah and then I showed Tanisha my drawing and she's like oh you're really good and I remember being like oh there's like Mm -hmm. this is an artist like she's a teenage girl who was into art at the end of the day but Mm -hmm. it was like somebody who was doing it and I was kind of like oh yeah I think that was a moment where I kind of but I, I also am a little hesitant to be like, that's the moment. Because I think when yeah. anything's too precious, we should... I think my friend Hannah actually said this. If anything's too precious, then you should be kind of um, weary of it. Mm. Like, it's almost too precious of a moment. Like, I walked into the house and I saw these canvases. But, I mean, now that I'm looking through it, like, looking back at it through rose-tinted glasses, and I'm kind of like... It was it was a, a bit of, like, a thing where I was like, oh, shit. Like, this is pretty cool that mm-hmm. she gets... like. I never thought my parents were going to buy me paint. Right. Like I was just doodling and stuff. And then I remember I went home and that's when I asked them to buy me a paint by number set. And that was the first painting I did, you know? Okay. And then from there, like I asked them for art supplies for Christmas and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was really into it for a while. Um, but you know what? Another thing I think was like when I was younger, I remember being really interested in like, like, I think all kids are interested in make-believe yeah. in a way. Um, but I was really super interested in, like, fabricating scenarios and, like, thinking of things in weird way. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, like, telling my friend, like, what if this? And they were like, that's really weird. I don't understand what you're saying. Like, in a sense of being, like, in my backyard and, like, you know, like, not not trying to replicate scenarios that were like, oh, we're going to do we're going to play house. I was more so being, like... 
oh, we're going to like we're going to put all of the red tulips. We're going to pick all the red tulips and then we're going to place them here. And then we're going to get all the leaves and place them like just making up weird stuff that like and then getting in trouble for it and being like, there is just not a lot of there's not a lot of things. There's not a lot of places where I felt like that made a lot of sense. Like, I remember getting in trouble for doing shit that didn't make any sense and being like, why am I doing this stuff? My parents being like, why the hell would you do that? You know, it was weird how I would look for things as a teenager and my angst and be like, what if this were true and not this other reality I'm living in, you know? And then I would look for it and I would find it and I'd be like, oh my God, wait, there's like these resources that are telling me that this imaginary world that I'm not living in right now mm-hmm. is actually existing. Like I remember hearing about like, I found out what postmodernism was. This is so silly, but when I was 11 or grade 11 rather, and being like multiple histories at once. And like, it just like reading that for the first time and going like, shit, that's the thing I wanted, but I didn't know how, I didn't have the verbiage or whatever to explain and being like, oh, there's this philosophy mm. around this thing and I, I needed it and here it is. Like I kept looking for things and finding them and being like, oh, that's so cool that it already existed. And I didn't, and I just thought I was coming up with these ideas. And, you know, some people are dissuaded by that. They're like, oh, like there's no new ideas. But when you're a teenager, you're kind of like, I don't know, that's pretty cool. I'm like, oh, I I need this thing and it's available to me. Like, I don't know. I was really, that was part of the reason of also being interested in like art history Mm -hmm. was like, I didn't, I took some pleasure, obviously, or a lot of pleasure in like learning about histories in general. But then what, when I got to art history, because it's so, um, it it's based on, it's so interdisciplinary. I was like, Oh, I, I can find, I can find a lot of things here. I can make it work for me. And some people think that I, I think that the discipline of art history is kind of cheapened. I've, I've, I've heard this like because of the fact that it's interdisciplinary, but I was kind of like, because you can make anything work. But I'm like, that's kind of the the whole thing. People have been making things work for their own ideas and creating really horrible histories. Like, why can't we do that and switch it around? And it, it was just really liberating. I remember being like, when I finally got all this information that I knew I knew it had to have existed because yeah. I felt it. And yeah. I was like, my ideas can't have to fit somewhere. And then I found it. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. I'm going to stay here for a while. It feels really yeah, nice. Yeah, for sure. Those moments are really nice when like you feel that you know, like you're not just like making stuff up for yourself. But that's I also feel, nice making stuff up. Absolutely, but it's also nice when you feel you're, when you feel that you're belonging to something too. Yeah. You know? Like when you're part of like a group. Yeah. And that's like when I graduated high school, and I went to Dawson. The first thing I felt for once in my life really was like, oh, here are these like-minded people. Exactly. With not only the same interests as me, but also like they're as angry as I am about certain things like that felt good to like not be always the person who is like the voice of of that but also to just like they were like totally comfortable in being weird and like kind of like taking up not being like I'm weird for the sake of it but just being like I don't this is just who I am you think I'm weird type thing and I was like yeah but I like it you know and there's like a lot of just like these weirdos (laughs) it's just a good space for sure um I wanted to ask you your opinion on these new projects that are popping up in Montreal and like how 
is this seen from a commercial gallery perspective? How do you guys like look at these places? Um, I don't know if like there's a you guys in this because <laughs> right, like okay, in in the sense of being like I'm not sure how like commercial galleries necessarily take it. I can't disassociate the fact that like these are often my friends and stuff. Yeah. So it's mm. like. I can't be like, my commercial gallery mind thinks this, but my friend mind thinks something. I mean, I'm excited. I've, I think of myself as someone who works in a commercial gallery for sure, but I am not a commercial gallery. Mm. So I'm excited whenever people do experimental things. I think the city should be a hub for it in the sense that like rent is still relatively cheap. Um, and there's a lot of empty spaces. I don't know if anyone noticed, but they keep appearing. Like all these places on Park that have been open forever are just vacated. And I think the rent could be a bit cheaper. I'd, I feel like some of the prices are like a bit high for what for the industry or the economy that is that is present here. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about them. I think that the more the merrier. Yeah. Um, more voices bring more artists here. Uh, Show. I mean, also these are venues for people who are still in school or just coming out, like to actually show their art. Mm. Um, there seems to be a spirit of collaboration amongst them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of the shows that I've seen in these spaces have also been really, really good, and oftentimes more exciting than things I've seen in commercial galleries mm. or in um, even in institutions necessarily, just because they don't have to follow a market. Yeah, uh, and the market here is like quite conservative so it's like when you follow it you get into weird like kind of kitschy sometimes territory and uh you don't have all these like institutional barriers uh so yeah i hope there's more of them yeah i mean i was excited when jess and steph opened Mm -hmm. ck2 um i wrote a little article on it for editorial magazine another thing i'm excited more magazines um (laughs) i think that uh like eli's and daphne's space yeah um Vidange is, has had really good programming. Um, Soon.tw. Yeah. Good shows. I mean, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm very positive, can you tell? And I, I actually, if I do have to say, like in terms of how commercial galleries view them, uh, definitely not in any negative way. I think that they offer a very different um, product. Yeah. I don't want to call it that necessarily, yeah. but than commercial galleries. I didn't mean it in a way that it's like competition or anything like yeah. that. More, I meant it more in a way that is like more like chances to to view artists. I yeah. hope that the commercial galleries and the curators or directors of them pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think Raising Cattle is a really great space. I've never gone there and seen other, I might be wrong, so I'm sorry if mm-hmm. I am, but like I've never gone there and seen other directors of commercial galleries and I think that the shows have been great and that they've mm-hmm. shown a lot of artists that I then see at spaces in New York for example um, sometimes I'm introduced to them through Raising Cattle and other times I'm excited to see them show up at Raising Cattle so mm-hmm. it's like I think that I think that there is I don't want to like make any sweeping statements but I think that sometimes there is a divide between what galleries or curators or directors of commercial galleries in Montreal are paying attention to and what is actually happening in the city or mm-hmm. Because it might not make them money. I don't know. Um, there's always that. Or right? there's just a time constraint. Like they work full-time yeah. jobs and sure. they're thinking about their gallery all the time. But yeah. I'm paying attention to them because I think that I'd be, I wouldn't be I would be doing my job well. It's also like I live in a city where it's so easy to see all of the art in the city because there's just not that much happening at once. Yeah. I just think that the culture in Montreal has always been around artist-run centers. Mm-hmm. 
and there's yes. there's a lot of grants and commercial and or governmental subsidization around those. Oh, that's subsidization, yeah. not subvention. Wow, um, but it's nice to see this weird animal emerge. That's like yeah. not a commercial gallery, not not going to sell work, right. and not um, an artist-run center because. Sometimes the politics of the artist run center are so crystal clear that they can't do other things, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know, they have they have to fill a quota. Mm-hmm. And these other spaces mm-hmm. can do whatever the fuck they want. So I, yeah. hope they, I hope they take those liberties and do that. And um, I'm hoping, like, in the future to work in those spaces, too. Like, to, like, I'd love to do a show in some of them. So yeah. I'm being really supportive, not only because of that, but also because I think what I've seen them, the shows that I've seen in those spaces have been the more exciting shows I've seen in Montreal this year. I think artists have always made for the best curators uh-huh. because they're like just showing art of people around them. Yeah. They're not going in with like these like yeah. grave ideas of what curating is, you know? Right. Um, I think some of the better curating goes into, and I've noticed this, and this is something that I've I hope goes into my shows too, is that some of the better curating happens when the artist trusts you and they know you and they like want to be collaborative and like work with you and not just put stuff in your space. Mm-hmm. And often with commercial galleries, like that's not always the case because you're like, there's all of these other things that need to happen there and there's reasons that space exists. Of course. Um, but I think with these spaces, like the artists feel like there is that effort to be made and there's a lot more trust and stuff. More freedom. More freedom. Yeah. I hope, uh, yeah, I think more. Whenever I've had conversations with like younger art historians or people in art history and they're kind of like what did you do or how how would you like what's your advice kind of thing and I'm always like just get weird and like get nine of you get that space put stuff in it yeah you know like all the time yeah especially after you graduate and like I know it sucks when, especially if you're not like some rich kid and your parents are paying for everything, but if there's a lot of you paying the rent on one space and you find some place that's like on the St. Hubert strip, not yeah. like in the gentrifying portion of the city, yeah. um, and, and I don't, I'm not saying everyone go out there and be gentrifiers, God, no, but like like just these off spaces, um, you can do some really exciting things with not a lot of money yeah. and show your friends and stuff. You know, that's how, like, the music scene proliferated here was that people just, they created these organic communities where they played music. And, I mean, these is, these aren't utopias. Like, I, I just, example, I just said, like, go into a non-gentrified community and be a gentrifier. But, I mean, like, there is ways that you can do things and you can be, like, you can think about how it affects your community, whether that's the art scene in Montreal or that's the community that you open a gallery in. You can be smart and tactful, but you can be experimental at the same time. Yeah. And it's just crazy to me how Montreal kind of like has all these blinkers pointing to it being like, fuck me up and do weird things in me. And people are just like, I think we're going to just play a lot of house music in a dark basement. I'm like, yeah, but what else, you know, like, yeah, I don't know. No, there's a lot of chances for sure. But I wonder if it's a factor of not feeling confident enough, right? Yeah, but if you don't wanna if you don't wanna be like putting your ass on the mm. line and doing or embarrassing yourself, like you might not do anything at all. But yeah. also like just do it for your friends. I mean, part of the reason that these people are doing it is because they have this support system. Yeah. Uh yeah, do it for your friends. Show your friends. 
they'll come to the space. Yeah. They're going to be excited about it because you're showing their work and then their friends are going to be excited. Like, start, you know, like we have, Concordia is the biggest art school in North America. It has the has more students enrolled than SAIC, which is the second biggest uh-huh. um, art school in North America. And the reason I know that is because the uh, dean of fine arts at Concordia, uh, Rebecca Duclo, was the dean of fine arts at SAIC and my okay. former teacher, okay. someone who I also think of as a mentor. Uh, and it's crazy how little they're showing each other's work. Like, I have friends who are in school in Vienna, and there's constant art shows. Just like every night there's an art show. Chicago is the same thing. It's like, show your work. Open up your apartment. Show Like, yeah. there needs to be, the students need to show each other's work more. Yeah. Like, they don't just need to wait for the artist-run center, the commercial gallery there could be so many more project spaces, imagine. Right. And I hope that there are shitty ones because I hope that there's like a diversity and range of yeah. stuff happening in the city. Yeah. Like I think that the ones that we talked about are really good, but that's because they're like a bit older and they kind of, they're not just students, you know, they're people who've been in the art world for a while yeah. or like have yeah. already graduated from Concordia years ago. They're like approaching or already into their thirties. Yeah. I, I understand that that's still quite young, but they're like, they have some maturity no, and experience behind yeah. them. Like, I hope some of the people who don't start doing stuff. Like one of the best shows I saw this year um, was these two artists who showed work in their basement. The show is called Purpurina. And yeah, they just looked down at their basement. And they're like, oh, shoot, we have this space. And when I walked in, I was like, wow, this is a perfect space to show art because it was already painted white and there was a kind of platform. And But they also used portions of the basement that weren't like that looked like a basement yeah. to walk through a weird thing. But they showed their drawings and their sculptures and it worked because it was just like the people around them were obviously being supportive so they felt confident. Yeah. And the show was good. Show shit in your basement. Call your landlord and say, hey, I'll pay you this amount of money to just occupy it for a couple of weeks and put on an art show. They might like it. They might not. I don't know. I also think that it could be like a community forming Mm -hmm. um, event or experiment. Yeah. I don't know. It depends how much success you want out of something. Like, I think people who run a space and it has, like, a name attached to it and they have programming expect something from it. Yeah. They want to, like, sustain a certain kind of level of programming, a reputation, a group of people, blah, blah, blah. But if you don't have those things in mind, like, I don't know. Why not? Why not? No, for sure. Do your thing. I'm super happy that you came. This is like super cool. And honestly, I mean, since since the first time that we talked in the gallery, I knew that it was going to be really interesting. What you, you had that to I say. talked a lot. No, I'm excited because I think that um, you're creating a little, a little archive of some people yeah. in the art scene here. Um, and yeah, like you were asking the question about like how do you do like you're yeah. doing it. Yeah, but I, honestly, it's because I do have. A very easy access to this stuff because one of my best friends is like an artist and you know I met a bunch of people like that and even for me at the beginning with that introduction of like somebody that is really close to me it was pretty tough it's a very open like social group mm-hmm. but at the same time it's very um I don't want to say exclusive because oh it's my not, god you but, should absolutely say it's exclusive <laughs> but it's there's a like literally yeah. no group I don't think besides like <laughs> 
some secret society. Like the art world is the second most exclusive group of people. No, but if you try to go and like meet a bunch of like lawyers or doctors, <laughs> it's the same thing. You know? Also, you'd be bored off your ass. You're like, yeah, I'm going to go meet probably. a bunch of people. Exactly. No. Yeah. Not, all, not all doctors, not all lawyers. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an exclusive group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of snobbism and mm-hmm. like whatever. But like I was saying before about my love for the Kardashians, like I don't think that helps anybody and that only keeps the same people out and the same gatekeepers in, you know? So it's like anyone who wants to turn their nose up at shit, like you try it. Yeah. Also, like there is such a privilege in being able to turn your nose up at things, you know? Mm-hmm. It's And I think it comes out of fear. People are scared that people are going to then turn their nose up at you for being associated with something. But I mean, it may happen. I mean, you might like, be living in an apocalypse, so you should probably do whatever the hell you want to do. Probably. Wow, so. that's like the perfect closing statement. <laughs> that's it. Okay. We're gonna, we're gonna like no wait wait wait. Just just. <laughs> I was so excited. I was like, whoa. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I normally ask my my guests to tell me a story, and I completely forgot this with you. I saw in your email that, but I didn't yeah. know what it meant. Like, what kind of story? Any like story. a fable. For example. Um, I haven't listened to Steph's yet. Yeah. But she's like one of my best friends, so I yeah. should absolutely do that. Well, she read a poem that she wrote. Okay, I can write a poem. Is yeah, that, for is, sure. that t- is that too? Is that too like? No, go for am it. Am I copying Steph? No, that's fine. That's fine. Okay, I mean, but this is a poem. Okay, great. I'll yeah. just sorry, Steph, for copying you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to find this email. Yeah, for sure. My... Okay, so um, this poem is is interesting. I like that your audience is like. I feel like I can say a lot of stuff because. I know that it's not going to go in like a certain place, you know, it's, it's, it stays within a certain circle. Exactly. That's great because I can say crazy stuff and yeah. then be like, oh, I'm I, mean, not I, want, I want you to say crazy stuff. OK, so I wrote this poem because, um, hmm, well, actually, like a couple of reasons. But um, this girl that I met in Vienna who was dating this guy that I'm also dating in Vienna. So it was like this weird kind of like whatever. So she asked me to be in a group show uh, in Gras in Austria. Mm. So I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Like, I'll give a piece of writing for the show. And then so I wrote this poem about three men, three men in my life, which I thought was like a weird. Anyways, I don't know why I'm explaining the poem, but I wrote about three men in my life. The first one was Donald Trump, which is like very, very, I don't know, it was very abstracted. And the second one was this guy that I'm seeing in Vienna. And the third one was mm-hmm. who runs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if we should put any of that in, but this is the poem. Okay, it's called Nota Bene, and then in brackets, nothing good. At 5 p.m., you ask if I will hide amber in my nasal cavities, if I picked up when St. Michael called if the astringent was applied to grapes. Amortize your assets, call back your primordial father, draw lines across filthy floods. At that time, when you still sometimes rang, I imagined leftover breath, clung to the receiver, belonged to you, fantasized that my traces could be yours, the significance of mouths atop other outlets, simple pleasures whispered into a too tight channel. It was also at that time that Nazareth closed its doors. Buzzed about at luncheons, facts clouded in suspended particles, words slogged through, rested from syrupy remnants, weighed down at bottoms of saucers, wine you deemed too sweet to sip. The day after the winter solstice, you ask, 
If I can predict this year's biggest sporting event, if knotted cherry stems are still sexy, if I could kindly unarch my back, letting idols in. Buy me music and jewelry, fill an absence, brittle but the brightest of blues. That's it. Awesome. I feel like it's pretty compelling at this time of day, and then I feel like it summarizes quite well a lot of the things I talked about in the podcast. I'm Thank glad to have much. read yeah. it. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, like, it, I think it sounds like really good, and um, it makes complete sense. This episode was produced and edited by me, Marx Rich Wilson. The sound design and engineering is always done by Milton Matthew. Our visual designer is Mr. Victor Garibay. The music credits are available in our website, intothispodcast.com. After the holidays, we'll be back with a conversation with musician and visual artist Jackson Darby. You can subscribe to Into This Podcast pretty much wherever you get your podcasts or from the website, intothispodcast.com. Happy holidays and we'll see you in the new year.